0: Welcome to This Is What Democracy Sounds Like. I'm Kevin Prang. This program is a presentation of Metropolitan Congregations United. MCU is a community organization that brings together religious congregations, community groups, and individuals to work for a common purpose, to create a better life for all residents of the region. We work at the intersection of race, economy, political power, gender, and the structures of oppression at work within us individually, within our organization and within the community. We are working towards building people's control of the government, building community control of the economy, expanding the public sphere, and creating a structural racial equity. Today, my guest is Dr. Art McCoy, the superintendent of the Jennings School District. And today we're gonna talk about trauma-informed practices in the schools. Welcome, Dr. McCoy.
1: Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you.
0: Let's just start with a definition. What do trauma-informed practices mean in the world of education?
1: So, uh, first, you know, it's important to, to establish just the definition of, of trauma in general. And trauma in general tends to mean an experience and a reaction to an experience of abuse, neglect, um, or emotional loss, And that could include anything from physical, mental, uh, and of course emotional, but it also could include war, devastation, as well as pandemics. And so so with that definition, then to be trauma-informed means that as a school system or as an organization that you know and understand the factors, the look-fors, the reacting through such an emotional experience of physical or mental emotional abuse or neglect or, um, or even sexual abuse, as well as um, even chemical abuse and misuse and more. And so it's to be informed about what it looks like before, during, and after, and what actions to take to curtail such experiences in the lives of students and adults. It also includes secondary trauma, understanding that our adults, our social workers, our counselors and others experience trauma supporting people with trauma. And so again, just to recap, trauma is the response we have to an experience or witnessing an event that threatens your life or your safety or your personal integrity. And so as teachers, we experience that occurring to students and parents and more and so we have equipped ourselves to be able to have resilience and real-time actions to offset eliminate or to rebound any type of traumatic experience.
0: Thank you for that definition and it sounds like you know taking into account what the teachers and administrators go through is just as important as the students so if the trauma is not recognized for a student, how does that affect behavior and learning for students? What what does that mean? How does it play out in the classroom and, and, and affect how a student actually learns?
1: First, physiologically speaking, if trauma is not recognized, it can cause permanent changes to the structure and the chemical activities in the child's developing brain. So it could cause for a child to think that the abnormal behavior, it could cause for certain synapses to not connect, which then makes it difficult for them to bond, have deep relationships, love, show emotions like highs and lows, or show too many highs, too many lows, or show a high emotion at the wrong time. Like, if someone were to cut themselves. So, that's first, the physiological uh, impact is significant when trauma occurs and is not being addressed. Then you have a, a, a myriad of other just still physiological things, such as bed wetting, hair falling out um, without you know, having it be cut out, um, weight loss, weight gain, appetite loss. Um, food comfort at being a comforting uh, mechanism. So appetite gain from having the comfort from food. Um, And there's a myriad of other physiological things, hormonal imbalances and more. So then you move from the physiological uh, impact from trauma to the uh, more sociological impact of trauma of safety needs being met or not being met. So, a lack of a feeling, I just can't control myself, or I just, I don't know what I'm about to do, I'm about to explode, or I'm about to go hit somebody, um, or I'm about to go stab myself, Uh, you know, those type of things turn to this whole arena of safety needs being impacted from your experience of trauma to the, then to, from body, physical safety needs to environmental safety needs. I don't feel safe anywhere. I don't wanna go outside my room. I feel like someone's gonna hurt me. No matter where I turn, someone's gonna hurt me. Uh, I wanna run away to a place where no one can hurt me. I feel like life for me will never go right. Those are all quotes from students that I've heard who've experienced trauma and at the stage of the safety level of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. That's the second level. Uh, the, the, The saddest and most difficult level is the third tier of Love and belonging. Students who have experienced trauma have a difficult time bonding or rebonding or falling back in love with their parent or uh, loved one, grandparent or whoever did it, uncle, neighbor, in this, and especially in the sense of sexual abuse and things of that nature, which is traumatic. And so there's a difficulty in bonding and feeling like you belong. I don't feel like I belong in this family, this house. Um, or even trauma from a divorce and then a new partner, male or female is introduced into the home. And then there's a traumatic understanding that relationships die. What we had will not last forever as two parents. And now you have a new person in your house. There's a sense of a lack of belonging. Uh, Do I fit in this new house? And that's the third tier. Uh, The fourth tier is this self-esteem, self-respect. There's a lot of, 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 of children and adults who have low self-esteem, little self-respect um, to the point that some might go back and repeat behaviors of abuse that were done to them, such as prostitution or drug selling or peddling or carrying weapons at a young age of 12, 10, 9, from seeing older people doing it. That's at that extreme level of self-respect and community respect and family respect, uh, societal respect and so forth, so esteem. And then lastly, the top level uh, is self-actualization, which is where you, where you don't get to define yourself. Others or your circumstances have defined you and you're in a prison. You're trapped in the prison of your circumstances and you've internalized it. Um, that is the highest level and the most difficult one that takes therapeutic sessions, therapists, psychiatrists and more. And uh, so as a school system, we literally put plans in place and programs We're the first in the state of Missouri to have Dr. Joan Luby, a psychiatrist, do parent-child interaction therapy to offset every stage that I just described in an intensive eight to 12 week therapeutic session where they literally uh, have therapists and a psychiatrist telling parents what to say and what to do to reprogram themselves and their child. And then, of course, our teachers have a modified version of that for teacher-child interaction therapy for the worst and the most neediest cases of therapeutic services. We're the first in the state of Missouri and three in the country to actually do that. And that's still occurring even during this pandemic through telehealth and telemedicine.
0: Yeah, the task of recognizing emotions can be difficult enough for us as adults. And if you're a child in first, second, third grade, and you've got all of this pouring in on you and you can't identify it, it can be really difficult for a child.
1: It can be difficult at first. And then once a person gets the gist of what they're being asked, then it becomes easier each time. Uh, You have to try some things like color charts, mood tables little uh, surveys with frowny faces, happy faces, frightening faces, and so forth, and say, point to the one that you most feel like right now. Um, and that, that's a good starting place. Uh, and we do that frequently and all the time in, in classroom settings before you even start teaching anything. You got to see where they are before you can reach them.
0: OK. So you mentioned that you have a new program in place to deal with some of these issues. Uh, tell us more about it. What's the name of the program? Where did it come from, and why did you go down that route?
1: Parent-child interaction therapy and teacher-child interaction therapy is, a, is an emerging practice that's about, I would say, six to, to, to seven years new uh, in the therapeutic space, with therapists being trained to do it besides the psychiatrists. And now, uh, parent-child interaction therapy and teacher-child interaction therapy in the school is brand new in the sense that we're only the first in the state of Missouri to do it and only one out of three in the country to be doing it. So it came about from a psychiatrist, a renowned child psychiatrist named Joan Luby from Washington University and the chair of the psychiatry department at WashU, trying to uh, expand her research. And she created a template of a 12-week therapy session for therapists in a therapeutic session, uh, setting, and after doing that research for about four or five years with people and actually literally having results that were more powerful through therapy than taking a pill or taking drugs, like twice as powerful in, in offsetting trauma or stopping the behavior than actual medication, she then wanted to take it to the schools. but for a year or so, no school had took her up on the opportunity. And so um, until I was introduced to her by another WashU colleague of mine, uh, serving on the Brown School Board for the Brown School of Social Work, uh, that colleague said, hey, why don't you meet Dr. Luby? And from there, the partnership began and we piloted with the, the top 100 neediest families in Jennings School District. And then we expanded it to add the Urban League with children ages three through eight to receive this service with parents. And of course, not just those children from age three through eight, but any other sibling in their house, which is 14, 15 or however old, and the parent going through an eight week to 12 week session. And the parent gets paid 400 plus dollars per child to endure through this process. And at the most extreme level, the child puts on an EEG probe to actually measure the brain synapses to see if it lights up in the front for your executive cortex, for executive functions, your frontal cortex for executive functions, or if it's lighting up in the back for your amygdala, which has the emotional response. And if there's more lighting up in the back than in front, then there's a clear understanding that the child is still in an emotional state and not necessarily reasoning as clearly. And if it's lighting up near the front, then there's more executive function of patience, focus, communication, on the side tiers. And so you're able to actually see um, the, actual practice of behavioralism saying this this word to child having an impact to how they're thinking of synapses and that's just the beginning that that is the most intense program and then you kind of tear from there to less intense where you're teaching teachers how to have appropriate interaction and then you have other settings of group-wide district-wide teacher trauma training in the end, and then one more practice of comfort spaces, having a comfort space in every school for our students uh, and then for adults for that secondary trauma. We have uh, therapists that are dedicated just towards the adults that have a caseload of adults who may be experiencing, for instance, real situations that I've learned about from my staff, the death of a, of a grandchild or the death of a pet that affects them or the custody dispute of a grandchild or a child in a, in a, in a family, in a, in a teacher's life. That's all important towards them having something, some resilience and something to give to students or less to give if they need attention themselves. So what's been
0: the reaction from both uh, the parents and the staff? I know sometimes it can be difficult to uh, start new programs for staff who have, have seen a lot come their way. And if something new comes, it can be some resistance. So how do you onboard your staff? And then also what's been the reaction from the parents?
1: The reaction from our parents and staff has been the, the reaction has been overwhelmingly positive. They, they have all been overwhelmingly positive in their response, because they view it as part of our three E's of something to empower them to have a better tomorrow than yesterday, something to enlighten them to know more than they knew before, because knowledge is power, and something to engage them physically in action, engage them to make sure that they're doing, doing right. Because when you know better, you do better. And so we, so this is a perfect combination of you know of enlightenment for the head uh, empowerment for the heart and engagement for the hands so that we can all do better and teachers were excited because they got a new training that is just instrumental right now so many teachers feel ill equipped ill prepared and and not supported with to support the challenges that children come into the classrooms with the life challenges they're being asked to be life coaches but aren't being given the life tools, the empowerment, enlightenment, and engagement to be the life coach that's needed. And so this was a solution and an answer to many of their uh, requests. So it's been very well received to the point that we have now moved from being a trauma-informed district, the first in the region, to being the first set of centers for healing engagement. And that's the new language uh, that's come from the West Coast. Uh, psychiatrists and psychologists and therapists centers for healing engagement. And that means that not only do you know what trauma is, so you're trauma informed, you have a definition, and not only do you know what to do, but you've put so many things in place that you literally heal people. You are a center for healing engagement. And so for instance, those comfort rooms and comfort spaces that we have two of for one for adults, one for children, You literally can see an adult start playing with figurines or drawing or having a moment in a chair with the uh, low sensitivity, some music in the background, meditation music. And you can literally see the stress dripping away from them as they get five minutes in there. You can literally see the children recharging, rethinking and reemerging from a dark place in a dark space. Um, That is a center for healing engagement. And so it's been my goal to have every school, every building, every playground, uh, every facility have the essentials for being a center for healing engagement. And that includes a person that's trained to be a conflict resolution specialist, because sometimes the conflict follows the person and you need a real time referee to separate you from the conflict that you may be running away from. That's why gunshots were so high in St. Louis city was the Myrtle capital, uh, for, for some time. It's because there's no real time conflict resoluters or, uh, you know, experts that, that are right there following the conflict. In addition to having some center for healing engagement, so that when you get there, you start to heal and don't have to necessarily kill. And so those, that's why even though we serve some of the city in 63136, which is part, a tip of the city, um, we have had tremendous success with reducing the school to prison pipeline uh, for our students that make up part of that zip code. And that, that's significant because that was one of the higher zip codes for children in the pipeline of the adjudicated court system. But Centers for Healing Engagement helps to, to offset that.
0: So speaking of the uh, school-to-prison pipeline, um, one of the factors of that is that there are now um, police and safety officers in buildings, and we've seen what happens when that can go wrong. So how do you make sure that those police and safety officers understand your trauma-informed practices and what you're trying to achieve at your schools?
1: We have our police officers, our school resource officers, uh, be if that's the first training they get is trauma-informed practice training, um, also understanding our, our wellness framework. We look at our whole district from a wellness framework and we try to ensure 26 wells, uh, well-traveled, well-spoken, well-dressed, well-equipped, well-loved, um, and you know, workers, because when you work, you feel well because you're productive. So wonder kinds and workers. So so that's the in-service that our police officers get upon entry into our school from our principals and even myself. And um, we definitely include them as a part of the system because they are a very important, seamless part of the system. And to be honest, I believe that... Um, working in the school system and getting that kind of training is the best training that any police officer could ever receive uh, because police officers are taught to, to really exercise the continuum of force so that if someone is about to hit them with their finger or their hand and they, they, they start at that continuum of fists and maybe take out a club to, to overpower the fists and then if somebody has an object like a club or a stick or bat, then they take out a taser to overpower the taser. There's a continuum of force. If someone has a taser, then they take out a gun. uh, Because anything that could threaten your life, then it's time to use a gun. Well, the first part of that continuum of force has to be a trauma-informed lens uh, to understand how to negotiate and how to see the why behind the what. That is the key to trauma-informed practices and, and experts. You always ask the why, because the why precedes the what, and it's the key to stopping the what, is the why. And so police officers who work in schools are often the best negotiators, the most. They, they actually form great relationships, bonding relationships with young people. Young people tend to trust them more, and they lean on them more based off of our survey data and the, our PAL, Police Athletic uh, League, uh, which is like basically where police officers play boxing, basketball, tennis, and homework with students. And they, the students run to the police officers because there's a relationship there. But that's because those police officers are very much uh, part of our centers for healing engagement.
0: Let's turn to some more recent issues. How has Jennings been handling the COVID-19 outbreak? And what are you doing to continue to educate your
1: kids? We flipped our district in a matter of 48 hours to become a nonprofit, <laughs> giving away food and giving away laptops and Chromebooks and going from a physical education to a distance learning virtual education. And so we ultimately have given out 1,200 Chromebooks to every kid and family who's requested it. Uh, we've given Wi-Fi broadband assistance using Some of our partners, AT and T being a big one, and Spectrum being a big one, we've given over thirty six hundred meals every Monday, breakfast and lunch meals for the week, so uh, to about you know five hundred to seven hundred families that come and need them every Monday, and we've given over sixty thousand pounds of groceries at our two grocery store hubs. We own and operate two grocery stores that are grocery store hubs, the J-Town Market and the Fairview Food Hub. Um, and they, they've had 60,000 pounds of groceries from Snooks, thanks to Snooks donations and St. Louis Area Food Bank, who's been a great giver of the majority of food in Operation Food Search. Academically, we have 95% of our students online engaged by phone calls, Zoom, and Google Classrooms. We also have two other platforms called Ingenuity and Schoology uh, that the secondary level students use in addition to Google Classroom. And frankly, it's gone much better than most people have expected. I've heard so many reports from teachers and even parents saying, my child used to be bored or used to be disengaged physically at school, but now they're doing more homework and in their class or in their in their um, bedroom doing more work than I've seen them do ever in a school year. We've closed the digital divide by making sure every kid had devices. Jennings was already a one-to-one district for grades three through eight. And then thanks to the donations from Worldwide Technology, Ameren UE, and um, and from at least one or two other places, Uh, we were able to give a MasterCard being one of the other big places. We were able to give away 200 laptops to our juniors and seniors and then Chromebooks to every kid.
0: What are some of the extra stresses that the current situation, the quarantining can place on students?
1: Normally school is something that's certain. You have to go. A lot of the stresses start with, is the world coming to an end? What's going on? The other stresses include you know, will I have a house? Will I have food? Um, will, will mom and daddy be able to keep their house because I don't see them going to work or they were just laid off uh, or they're still going to work because the majority of African-American families, one out of five cannot, uh, only one out of five can work from home remotely. So four out of five can't. Um, five out of six Latinos can't, which means one out of six can. So it's like, well, will my mom and dad come back safe? Will they... Will they get me sick? Will they be sick? And all of those are real those are real concerns that, that are true for both the adult and the child. So it's been very important for me to be out there uh, physically as much as possible and every Friday I've been out there with food distributions and then on the, and it's very important for me to do video conferences. I've done quite a few of them. Uh, checking into all 800 of my virtual classes trying to get to all 800 of them but checking into many of them. But then also doing videos, sending them videos to keep them updated with what's going on. When they understand that there are some people who are working on certain things and they're controlling those security and that's back to mental health and being trauma-informed. You know, we have a whole in my international work with Canada we created a 60 page like lesson plan on uh teaching being trauma-informed during a pandemic and we gave it to all of our staff and to other school districts around the region who wanted to participate and one of the uh lessons in that 60 page document um is about mind body and uh soul mind body and soul and for the mind you have to You have to reframe or define the problem and then be able to reframe it. And that's the heart of where children are, you know, where if you can define it or if you can label it, pull a label on it and say, this is a pandemic, then learn what pandemics are and then reframe it. Or put a label on this i'm afraid well what am i afraid of i'm afraid of the unknown okay well, understand the unknown and then reframe the unknown we used to reframe the word fear to be false evidence appearing real so that helps them reframe it okay my unknown i'm afraid of the unknown and that's false evidence appearing real or reframe fear to be uh face everything and rise because there are some things to be afraid of, afraid of but face it and rise and when you focus on your reframing on it, then that's the that's literally the lesson for the mind. Label it, learn it, reframe it, and focus on the positive of, of facing everything and rising smartly. When you define something, you then have a little bit more power over it. And so, uh, so that's been a key part in our conversations with children of kindergarten, five-year-olds, all the way up to uh 18 year olds and even parents labeling it learn it reframe it focusing it to take the power away by defining it and then there are t- techniques for your body and your soul you know get the right sleep go to bed on a certain time wake up at a certain time drink and hydrate yourself uh that's why food is important nourishment is important move around uh in your house do your exercises uh you have to connect with people you have to forgive you have to have an emotional first aid toolkit where you literally can pull into that toolkit and help yourself move out of any emotion through music, through activity, through being able to have a journal, through self-talk, affirmations, through appreciation, saying I appreciate you for doing something or I appreciate you because of who you are. Uh, So, you know, those are the techniques for the students. And those are part of the modules that I helped to be a part of to not only create and teach uh, in Canada, but I also teach them in the business space. I did about five sessions with corporations on just that uh, here in the area. And then of course with my my own staff uh, and principals. We're just about out of time,
0: but there's one other thing I wanted to touch on. You received word just today that funding from the state is going to be greatly reduced. So how are you going about Uh, deciding what's important and making decisions for the school district in the coming months?
1: You know, we have to, during COVID, we have to reassess what is essential and what can be on pause. And we used to say that it's under all circumstances, students come first. Now we have to say under all circumstances, safety comes first. And so everything that we keep has to be to help us stay safe, and to help us do anything that we may do for students with safety at the forefront. There's going to have to be some things that we pause. But more importantly, I've been a champion for the past 12 years in raising private money. And before COVID, we were raising $2 million of private dollars every year. And now during COVID, it's increased. I mean, I've raised about a half a million in the past two months. Uh, So we're at like a $3 million rate from private funds. And so I encourage everybody to understand how to solicit dollars from philanthropists, philanthropic organizations, private funds, be it the RBC, Regional Business Council, Civic Progress, or be it just foundations out there uh, like the Clark Fox Foundation, the St. Louis Foundation. All of them have money that they want and need to give away for people that are doing the right stuff. I think that the whole state is going to have to lean into that more. So in essence, superintendents are going to have to start leading more like college presidents. That's got to be part of the solution.
0: Okay, great. Thank you very much for being with us today, Dr. Art McCoy, superintendent of the Jennings School District. To learn more about what we do at MCU, go to the Metropolitan Congregations United website at mcustlewis.org. Also, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for news and events. If you want to participate with us, you can find details on our website and social media outlets. I'm Kevin Prang, and you have been listening to This Is What Democracy Sounds Like. Tune in again next time, and thank you for listening.